16. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 40 this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through the book of Acts together. Uh, If you're new to Bloomfield, we have been walking through Acts for about a year now, uh, just chapter by chapter, verse by verse, learning about uh, the early church, and not just the early church, but about God's instruction for our church today. Where we left off last week was there now in the second missionary journey of Paul. He and Silas uh, have picked up Timothy along the way. He's joined them. And if you were with us last week, you know that, that we studied that text and looked at how uh, Paul wanted to go to Asia. He, he felt like that's where God was leading him. But God made it very clear to him in a vision uh, that he was to go to Macedonia and there present the gospel. And it's very important that we remember that. Remember that God called Paul to go to Macedonia. Uh, Because when he gets to Macedonia and gets to Philippi there, uh, he immediately sees gospel fruit. But in responding to God's call and being obedient to God, he also faces great suffering. As we look at this text today, I want you to consider suffering in your own life. Suffering in the life of those you love. If you have not suffered greatly, if you're not suffering greatly, you will suffer. And we as Christians need to deal with suffering through the lens of Scripture. So often we don't. So often when suffering comes, we move farther from God instead of closer to Him. So often when suffering comes, it exposes how unbiblically we think about things like suffering and tribulations and trials. And so I hope today as we look to this passage... God, and the power of His gospel, will help us to better understand how, as He controls all things, and He's sovereign over all things, how He even uses our suffering for His glory. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40, to learn more about that. So out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able, if you would stand, remembering that this is the authority and the life of every Christian. Uh, This is God's word to us today. It is without error and it is empowered to instruct us today as it has throughout the history of the Christian church. So if you would listen then intently as we read what the Lord would say to us. Acts chapter 16 beginning in verse 16. Remembering now that, that, that Paul and Silas are there in Philippi. Lydia has come to faith in Christ. Her whole household has come to faith in Christ. Now they're continuing in their ministry there. And this is what we read. As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept on doing for many days. Paul, having been greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. 
Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison was shaken. And immediately, all the doors opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke... He saw that the prison doors were open and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid because they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Father God, we pray that you would encourage us through this your word today. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you are old enough to remember a book, book still being sold today, but that made a number of sales when it first came out in the early 1980s. Uh, The book was by a man named Rabbi Harold Kushner. And Kushner, in his counseling of others, was trying to help people understand suffering. Why do we suffer? And how do you reconcile The reality that there's this all-powerful, all-loving God able to do anything and the reality that there's evil and wickedness in the world and people suffer greatly. And so Kushner wrote his thoughts down in a book entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And in over a 30-year span, that book has gone on to sell millions and millions of copies. Kushner was no stranger to suffering. He in fact, dedicated the book to his son, Aaron, who had died at the age of 14 of an incurable genetic disease. Kushner watched his son suffer for over a decade, and during that time, he, he wrestled with this question that I would guess that many of us have wrestled with. God, why? Now, why do you allow suffering? Why pain? God, you have the power to change it. Why don't you change these things? Unfortunately for Kushner and for the millions who have heeded his advice and taken his book as their truth, this is how he reconciled it. 
he said, God does his best and is with people in their suffering. But Kushner's perspective was God's not fully able to prevent it. He shared then what I understand and you should from the scriptures, a heretical statement. This illustration that that God is like an overworked parent. He really loves his children. He really wants to take care of them, but... But sometimes he just gets so busy with everything that some things slip through the cracks. What Kushner presented and continues to present as he speaks in light of tragedies, even in recent days, is that God is not all-powerful and that God does not control the laws of nature. Kushner said, therefore, you have suffering because God is not able to stop it. Sadly... And many Christians in our church, perhaps many of you this morning, have reconciled suffering that way. By saying to yourselves, well, if God could change it, he would. Or these things have suddenly somehow happened outside of God's control. The problem with that line of thinking is it's completely contrary to God's word. And the greater problem of that is when we begin to follow that erroneous notion that suffering comes because God's not able to prevent it, we entirely miss the process that God has put in our life through which we can grow closer to Him. By asking questions, God, how, how can you use this suffering in my life for your glory? Because I believe that's the reason it's there, and that's what we'll see in today's text. Kushner's perspective that God is not all-powerful and does not control the laws of nature, has a problem rooted in the Scripture itself. And we see this throughout many, many passages. I want to read just a few of of them to us this morning. As I read these, consider what they say about God's ability, and God's power, and God's sovereignty, and His providence, His control of all things. Job a book filled with that wrestle of what do we do with suffering and why does suffering come? Job 37, beginning in verse 10. By the breath of God, ice is given. And the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick clouds with moisture and the clouds scatter His lightning. They turn around and around by His guidance to accomplish all that He commands them on the face of the habitable world whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Psalm 135. For I know that the Lord is great. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Psalm 148, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. And then Jesus himself, if you'll remember, he was in that boat and the the, the waves were crashing on it and it was getting stormy and the, the disciples, much like we, in light of Suffering, trial, tribulation, storms. They're worried. They're fretting. Jesus, what are we going to do? Jesus, wake up. Jesus, do something. Well, Jesus does wake up. 
Mark chapter 4 tells us, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Friends, I share these passages this morning and could share many others to remind us in the face of suffering, the face of suffering in your life, the face of suffering in my life and people I love, we need to be reminded that God is all-powerful and God does control all things. The way to bring comfort to God's people and to His church today is not to lessen who God is. It's to look to His Word that we might better understand who He is and why that suffering might be in our life. I can't give you an answer to every question about suffering, every particular detail. There are things I ask God myself, and I don't have answers to. But I have answers to the main questions and the questions we need to ask in light of what His Word tells us. And so this is a fitting passage to come to because this is a passage filled with suffering. Uh, Paul and Silas are obeying God. They're doing what he's called them to do. But in the midst of that, in response to obedience, there's gospel fruit, but there's also great suffering. But what I want to point out as we walk through this is that there's something for us to learn today about suffering in our own life and how we're to respond to it. Beginning with point one there, a reminder that God calls us to suffer for the gospel. God calls us to suffer for the gospel. Many times as Christians, we talk about suffering in kind of ambiguous language. Well, God allows it. But what we see in the scriptures is that there are times when God calls us to it. It's not that God's over on the sidelines watching these things taking place and saying, well, yeah, I'll let that happen. (laughs) As if he's a a parent at Walmart and one of the kids is throwing an extra bag of candy into the cart. Well, I'll let that happen. That's okay. Now, the Scripture says that God is in control of the kid grabbing the candy. (laughs) That God is sovereign over all these things. And what we actually find in this passage is... Paul, in his obedience to God, is called to suffering. How did, God end up, or how did Paul end up in Philippi? God gave him a vision. It wasn't that he felt the need to go there. Remember we talked about this last week when we talked about how do you determine God's will and the danger of basing God's, word in how you fe- God's will and how you feel. That's so often how we talk about it. How did you know God wanted you to do this? Well, I just had this feeling. I just really feel the Lord wants me to do this. But friends, those feelings can deceive us and often do. God's word does not. And so God leads us through his word. Here with Paul, he led him directly through a vision. As this man from Macedonia said, come here. But what Paul did not know, but what we see in today's text, is that that invitation was also an invitation to suffer. And it comes in a rather peculiar way as we read through this passage. Paul and Silas are going to the place of prayer. That's, that's the place down by the river where they met Lydia. We talked about that last week. And as they're going, the scripture tells us there's this slave girl. And so in this time, there were slaves. There were people, human trafficking, people that were purchased by others. 
Uh, sometimes they were slaves because they were working off a debt. It could be that this girl is a slave because of debt her family had, and she's working that off. The greater likelihood is that uh, she's been purchased by these owners. And we're not told how many of them are, but the fact that there's more than one indicates that there was a high price on her. And the high price is there because the Scripture tells us she is possessed by demonic forces that allow her to see into the future. That in the demonic realm, there's this way here in the text of somehow looking ahead, of divinating, of understanding what's to come. And so in this culture, in this place, people would pay a lot of money to find out their future. So can you imagine that for a second? Someone who advertises themselves as being able to see the future and being able to tell your fortune and you paying money for that? <laughs> and we see it all around today, don't we? And the problem is we, we treat it like it's harmless. We treat it like it's a little, little fun thing to do. The scripture, though, calls it what it is. It's demonic. It's from the devil. It's from the gates of hell themselves. And this girl is oppressed, possessed by this spirit who's able then to tell people their future. But then something very peculiar happens because you would look at that and go, okay, well, she's against the gospel, against the things of the God. The demonic forces are. Paul and Silas are for the things of God. But notice what happens. She's following them around saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Let me ask you a question. Were Paul and Silas servants of the Most High God? Yes. <laughs> and were they proclaiming to the people the way of salvation? Yes. And so this girl, possessed by demons, is doing what? She is proclaiming gospel truth. And so the question then presents itself, why wouldn't Paul just let her continue in that? I mean, the text tells us here he was annoyed. And we think of annoyed like we think of, you know, going on a road trip with the kids and this one's arguing with this one and we just stopped to eat and now this one's hungry again. Or, you know, you get annoyed over things. I'm really annoyed the preacher went long today, got to lunch late, had to stand in line, whatever it might be. We think of annoyances. I'm annoyed by traffic. I'm annoyed by taxes. I'm annoyed by things. But there's something to this word that tells us a little bit more. Now, the Greek word here for annoyed indicates a, a deep, deep concern in, in Paul's spirit. That this is a spiritual annoyance. He is annoyed because God has brought this annoyance in his heart. There's something there. Paul's looking at this situation going, this is not right. So what's not right? Friends, there can be no alliance between good and evil. That this demonically oppressed girl is not on the same team as Paul and Silas. And even the fact that she's following them and yelling these things out indicates a little bit of what we've seen in Acts before. Uh, those who had no interest in the gospel, no interest in the things of God, simply wanted power for themselves, see the power of the gospel, they're drawn to that, and perhaps these demonic forces on here think that they can somehow trick people into thinking, oh, we're on the same team. We're on the same side. We're saying the same thing she's saying. Don't have any concern 
about us, whatever it might be, we know that Paul is troubled by it. And I think that troubling comes because he sees this. And sees there can be no partnership between the demonic and the things of God. And friends, that's a good reminder for us this morning. We don't need to play around with the demonic. We don't need to fear it. The gospel is more powerful than it. But we as Christians need to be reminded, we we are not to entertain or, or play around with those things of the demonic realm. Especially, I think this applies to all ages, but to our young people today, our teenagers, our children, our students. You may have friends who say, hey, we're going to get together and we're going we're to talk to spirits. We're going to have a little seance. Got, got this little board and if we put our hands on it, it'll, it'll direct and, and we can speak to spirits on the other side. That perhaps some of you and your longing to speak with someone you've lost... You've gone to someone who said, well, I have the power to communicate to that person with you, for you. Friends, let me say clearly from the Scripture, this is demonic and it is evil. And as we're reminded in the text today, even if the demons proclaim the gospel, we are to remember that they are demons and to have no partnership with them. And so if the fortune teller has a cross on their table and a Bible beside it. That's not an invitation for us then to come and listen to what they have to say and hand our money over. It's a reminder to us of this text this morning where Paul very clearly calls out, it doesn't matter if she's sharing the gospel or not, she's filled with wickedness. And so then notice what Paul does. In his compassion for her, he casts the wickedness out. He can see that she's suffering under this demonic oppression. And so he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ... Come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But there's a problem with that. She was making a lot of money for her owners. And the scripture tells us that when that happens, verse 19, her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. And so here's the reality. They had probably invested a lot of money in her. Their return on that investment was the money that came in as she told fortunes. Now that investment is gone entirely. And perhaps that means a great portion, if not all of their income, is gone entirely. And so now they're going to suffer for a different reason than Paul and Silas suffer. But rather than complaining about what actually happened, they... They contrive, they twist the truth, they come up with a lie. So they go to the magistrates of the city and they say, essentially, uh, these men are creating civil unrest and they're breaking the law and they're telling everybody else to break the law. They just lie about it. But in that, they convince others and their response is then to bring great suffering in Paul and Silas's life. Scripture tells us they drag them into the marketplace, they strip their clothing off, and then they beat them with rods in the roman empire there were men known as rod bearers and they carried with them a stack of sticks sort of in our context today like a stack of canes and without going into the graphic detail of what happened here i think you can imagine they they beat these men until their flesh opened up i mean they beat them to the point of near death and you consider for a moment what might have been going through Paul and Silas's mind at that moment. We've obeyed God. We've done what he said. And now we're suffering. 
See, the temptation for us as Christians is to start to question God when suffering comes, especially when we're, when we're seeking to be faithful. And we're tempted to think things like, well, God, I, I did my part. Why aren't you doing your part? Or we're tempted to look out in our culture at people who are blatantly disobeying God, have no regard for His Word, and yet it seems like they prosper and things go well for them. And we can be tempted to think, well, well, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Uh, Paul may have been thinking these things. Silas may have been thinking these things. Perhaps you and your suffering may be thinking these things today. And so the question for us is, how do we reconcile suffering? I, I don't know that I have an answer that will fully satisfy every question you have about suffering. But I can tell you this. Jesus told us we would suffer. That the scripture does not tell us that if we become Christians, everything's going to work out fine. And yet I realize that's how some of you, maybe many of you, were taught growing up in this or another church. That here's what God's word says. So if you obey it, you will be blessed. That there's truth there. But the error comes in when we start to think about that as some type of formula. Well, if I just do this, this, and this, God will do this, this, and this. And then everything is just going to work out happy and dandy and great. But if you've lived life very long as a Christian and you followed Him, you've probably realized that that doesn't work that way, does it? And we suffer. And it's not proportional. And when it comes... We'll remember that Jesus said it would. He said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. He said, if, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to die to yourself, and that means you're going to suffer. And so the question we should ask is not, why am I suffering? The question I would encourage you to ask is, God, how can you use my suffering for your glory. God, how can you use my suffering for your glory? And if you've never thought along those lines before, I want to encourage you to think about that today in light of God's word. But as we do, one quick thing to note in this passage, point two, we find that we also may suffer because of sin. All suffering doesn't come because we're obedient and faithful to the gospel. Sometimes we suffer just because we're in sin. And so you note this, verse 19 her owner's hope of gain was gone. They're going to suffer now, but they're not suffering for the sake of the gospel. They're suffering because of their sin. And so some of you today, you might be suffering not because of your faithfulness. You're suffering because you've sinned. And because sin brings suffering with it. The great news of the gospel is that Jesus suffered on our behalf. He paid the penalty once and for all, and we can be free in Him. But the reality is, apart from that gospel promise, when we sin, sin brings consequence, and often that consequence is suffering. And so we need to be careful as believers, even, that we don't go around attributing every suffering in our life to, well, I'm just being faithful and God's testing or God's using this. Sometimes it's there because we're just flatly disobedient to God. 
And so today, if you're here and you're disobeying God's word, God's word says this and you're choosing this and and you know this. I don't need to convince you of it. Nobody else needs to convince you of it. The Spirit bears witness of His Word. You are convicted of it. And you may have every excuse in the book for why it's okay for you. The exempt cause always applies to who? Me. (laughs) Hosea 8, 7. Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. Hosea 10, 12-13. Sow righteousness, reap steadfast love. Plow iniquity, reap injustice. Sin will always take you farther than you intended to go. And sin will always cost you more than you ever thought you would pay. And the opportunity for you today is to repent and turn from it before the whirlwind comes and before the reaping comes. But for others... Your suffering may be indeed be there because of the gospel and because you're walking in faith. Why is it there? Point three. In part, I believe, because gospel suffering leads to gospel fruit. Notice how Paul and Silas respond to their suffering. It's about midnight now. Midnight would be a time you would do what? You would sleep. <laughs> Even in prison, you would sleep. But, but they're in a pretty tough situation because we've been told in the text verse 24 that the jailer was told to keep them safely that means he was told to make sure they stayed in prison not protect them and in doing that the scripture tells us he fastened their feet in stocks and this could have come in a variety of forms but history would tell us it was likely two large blocks of wood with very small holes in them their legs would have been spread apart and put in these holes and then they would have been locked into place And so at first it might feel like you're just kind of stretching your legs, but over time the pain would be excruciating and continual. And so for Paul and Silas, not only have they been beaten to the point of near death, now they're being held in these stocks and they're just in constant pain. But notice how they respond. They're not going to sleep in pain, but what will they do? Verse 25, they were praying and they were singing hymns to God. I don't know about you, but that, that is a convicting passage to me. One of the more convicting passages in the book of Acts because it presents us with the question, when you suffer and when I suffer, what's our first response? Is it to praise God and to sing hymns? You notice in some of the hymns we have sing, they talk a lot about pain and suffering. And that is a reminder to us that God uses these things for His glory. But how do you respond? How do I respond when we suffer? Why me? Why do bad things happen to good people? God, I don't understand. We question, we doubt. But here Paul and Silas, the text tells us, they pray and they sing hymns. And notice the rest of the verse. And the prisoners were listening to them. Midnight would have been a time for those prisoners to sleep as well. Maybe they're in stocks too and they can't sleep. But notice what happens. They're listening to them. Friends, when you suffer, and when I suffer, the world watches. And I honestly don't think it means much to the world when we're doing well and we thank God. 
I really don't think that mass repentance and revival breaks out every time there's an award ceremony and someone gets on the stage and takes the trophy and says, well, first and foremost, I just want to thank God. I don't think there's people all over the world dropping to their knees going, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've been running from God and I need to repent. And, and this person just thank God. I need to thank God. That doesn't phase anybody. It doesn't phase anybody when the athlete's in the end zone on their knee pointing to heaven saying, thank God. I don't think that grabs the world's attention. But I know from the testimony of so many that when Christians suffer, and in their suffering they thank God, and in their suffering they praise God, a lost and dying world is confounded. And they take note. And they turn and say, this doesn't make any sense to me at all. Why are you thanking God? If you believe God could stop this and He hasn't, why would you thank Him? Why wouldn't you curse Him? And friends, that is one of the greatest gospel opportunities we have today. And it comes when we suffer. I don't like suffering any more than anybody in this room. If you're here this morning and you come up during our time of invitation and say, Pastor, I just want to tell everybody I just love suffering and I just hope I suffer a lot this week, I will say, no, you can't do that because you've got a problem. Notice, God doesn't say to Paul in this vision, Paul, come to Macedonia so we can put you in jail and beat you till you're almost dead. See, God, God doesn't call us that way. But man, when that suffering comes, and when we've got it, whether, not a whether, we didn't want it, we didn't ask for it, and it's there, how will we respond to it? Paul and Silas praise God and thank God, and notice what happens. <laughs> Another just amazing thing, we don't, we don't know all the details, I wish Luke would have wrote ten chapters on this. That the earth starts to shake and chains come off people. And all of a sudden, all the prisoners can just get up and run out of the prison. And as amazing as that is to try to figure out, then try to figure this out, none of them run. They all stay in the prison. And so the, the guard, the jailer, wakes up. And we've mentioned this before. If you were a, a guard in charge of the prison and the prisoner escaped, then you would get what they had coming to them. And so this guard knows there's people in there who are going to die as a consequence for their crime, and they've gotten out, so now he's going to die, so he's just going to take the sword to himself. And then Paul cries out, Do not harm yourself! We're all here! I would love to know more about that, we're all here. <laughs> well, what was going on there? Here's the thought. Maybe those prisoners in their cells... We're sitting there, confounded, trying to figure out why in the world are these guys praising God in the midst of this? And maybe when those chains came off and those doors opened, instead of running out of that prison, they ran to Paul and Silas and said, what's going on here? When we praise God, when we thank God, when we sing hymns to God in the midst of our suffering, the world takes note. And these prisoners took note. And for whatever reason, 
They didn't leave. They didn't run. And so I think that's why this jailer walks in and the scripture says he's just overwhelmed and he drops to his knees. He says, what do I need to do to be saved? Because he sees the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel in Paul and Silas's life and to draw these others to them. And he wants to experience that power of the gospel. And then you know what happens. He repents. His household repents. I mean, can you imagine this scene? Your, your father, uncle, grandparent, whatever, he's the jailer and he's going to work. I'll see you tomorrow. And he comes home. Hey, I know it's midnight, but it's time to eat and have a feast. <laughs> can you imagine that? I mean, just imagine that for a moment. You go wake your kids up, grandkids up at midnight tonight. Hey, we're going to party and celebrate. They're like, what in the world is going on? That's the power of the gospel. These men, are, this man is so excited about what the gospel's done in his life, he cannot wait until tomorrow morning to tell his family. And he wakes them up and they feast and they come to faith in Christ. And his household, the scripture tells us, now are believers. And the gospel just keeps going forward. Friends, God uses suffering for His glory. How will we do that through your suffering today? I don't know. How will we do it through suffering in my life? I don't know exactly how. But I trust His Word and I believe that He has and that He will. And one more thing just to mention. It might seem a little interesting at the end of this passage. So now all this has taken place. Next morning comes, the magistrates say, let him out of prison, and Paul, that he won't leave. <laughs> and that might seem a little confusing. Why, why wouldn't he leave the prison? He said, go in peace, go. He doesn't leave. Well, notice what he tells them. He's a Roman citizen. Now, I don't know why Paul didn't mention that before they brought out the canes and started beating him. But at this point, he makes it clear to him he's a Roman citizen, and now they know what they've done is illegal. That they had no legal right to do what they did to Paul and Silas. So, so why does Paul stick around? I think he sticks around for this reason. So that by these magistrates coming to the prison and then accompanying him out, that then becomes public record. What Paul and Silas were doing was not illegal. The proclamation of the gospel in Philippi was not illegal. And I think Paul in doing that is helping others around him who are watching his suffering, who are counting the cost to realize you have the right and the opportunity and you've been called to do what I'm doing, so get out there and preach the gospel as well. And friends, that, that's a good word for us too. Because I don't know what tomorrow holds in our nation. And I don't know what will be legal and not be legal a year from now, ten years from now. There is a swelling tsunami that has come to the church in America today. But I know this. You and I have the legal right to go out there and share the gospel with every person in this nation right now. So do it. Celebrate freedom as an American that way. Go while you can and share while you can because we do not know what the future holds for us. I think that's what Paul was saying here. And one of the ways we can do that today is through coming to this table together as believers. Because this, the Lord's table, is a reminder to us, the Scripture says, 
of what Christ has done for us. This is a proclamation of the gospel. We proclaim it to ourselves. We're reminded of what Christ did for us. We proclaim it to one another. We remind each other, friends, this is why we can gather and we remind the world that this is what we believe. And so as we prepare to receive this together, I'll go ahead and invite the deacons to come forward. I'd ask you to consider this during the Lord's Supper today. How?